Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. So they've come out of Egypt. They haven't come very far. This is basically on the first day out in the wilderness. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn. Right? This is quoted in Luke 2.23, which we just read earlier. This is why Jesus went to be sanctified. Sanctify to me all the firstborn. Whoever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and animal, it is mine. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month Abib, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And it shall be, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that is, every firstling that comes from an animal which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. But every firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? that you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand, and as frontlets between your eyes, For by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Sass. Let's pray. Father, help us to hear and to understand your word. Show us the truth that's written here, that we might know how to be holy, how to walk with you, how to be sanctified to you. Help my wit that I might understand and speak clearly to your people and help us all to listen to what your word says. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text gets at a different kind of truth than one that we have much practice in receiving. The truth that's here in Exodus 13 with these two rites, unleavened bread, firstborn dedication, This truth is what we should call, could call, ritual truth. It's not primarily moral truth. 
We're used to seeing that in the Bible. Do this, not that. Be chaste. Be generous. Honor your father and mother. That's moral truth. It's not even necessarily theological truth. Here's who God is. Here's his power, his majesty, his attributes, his works in history. Ritual truth is a different way of speaking. It contains a different vocabulary. In one sense, it's a whole different language. And it's a language that we, frankly, are pretty unfamiliar with. If you ask your typical Presbyterian churchgoer about ritual, what will they say? Roman Catholic Church. That will be the first idea that comes to mind, and perhaps the only idea that comes to mind. But in this text, and of course in many other texts, God reveals rites by which his people are sanctified. Now, we already saw, we read in Colossians 2, what Paul says. That that old way of religion, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, that way is dead and gone. That way was the Levitical way in which Paul was raised. And so as we read about the Levitical way here in Exodus, yes, we understand that we have access to God by a different way. But at the same time, this material is here because this is how God educated his people in the wilderness and in the promised land. It's his way of telling them, this is who I am, this is how I work. And he told them, when they were underage like this, not necessarily so much in propositional truth, though there's a lot of that, but also in ritual truth. A calendar, holy days, feasts, habits, practices, sacrifices, firstborn dedications, all of these are God's way of communicating important truths to his people. But not only that, in fact, far more than that. Look at the heading with me. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me all the firstborn. This chapter is constructed in a really strange way. Because the heading is, Sanctify the firstborn. And Moses immediately drops that and moves to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then, in verse 11, he goes back to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, why does he do that? Why does he say, we're going to talk about the firstborn. Okay, let's talk about unleavened bread. And then, after we've said everything we want to say about unleavened bread, we go back to the firstborn. What's the idea? Well, I think that we should look at verse 1, or verse 2 rather, as the heading. This chapter is about making people holy. And there are two different ways that we do that. The first way is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second way is this rite of firstborn dedication. They are both sanctifying rites. They are two different ways in which God sanctifies the firstborn, in which God makes Israel, his firstborn son, holy. So we need to pay careful attention to this. We understand that holiness is very important, that holiness comes up a lot in the Bible. Holiness is demanded of all Christians. And God says here in Exodus 13, here is a way to be holy. So rather than simply saying, well, that's not a way in which I'm holy anymore, we need to say, how did this work? 
Why did God make his people holy with these rites? These rituals express and engender holiness. And since we're still God's holy people, whom he has delivered from Egypt, and whom he's bringing into the promised land of heaven, we need to listen to and learn about these rites of holiness so that we too can be holy. We're not in the Levitical system, but we should learn from the Levitical system. So the heading, verse 2, Sanctify to me all the firstborn. This is what the chapter is about. Sanctifying the firstborn. We shouldn't think that Moses forgot what he was talking about and that he put the firstborn heading on and then moved to unleavened bread and then went back to the firstborn when he realized that that was his original plan in writing this chapter. Rather, we should recognize that he brings up sanctifying the firstborn because all the material that follows is about that very theme. So sanctify the firstborn, what does that mean? What is this holiness of which you speak? Well, the first thing that God brings out about holiness is that it crosses species lines. Both of man and animal sanctify both of them. In other words, holiness is not something that is strictly a phenomenon for human beings. Your animals can and should be holy too. So already that gives us a clue as to what holiness is. Holiness is not an ethical category. Holiness does not mean primarily being good. Being ethical in your behavior, obeying the moral law. A holy person is good, but that's not what holiness is because you can't teach animals to be ethical. That's not part of who they are. They don't have a moral law and power to fulfill it. Yet they do. They are subject to these rites of holiness. What does holiness mean? Briefly, we've talked about this many times. Holiness is a statement of purpose. To be holy means that you exist for God. I've illustrated this in the past, that in some kitchens you'll find a holy rag. A holy rag that exists for a specific purpose. There might be two holy rags. One is holy for hands, and the other is holy for dishes. And woe be to you if you take the holy rag that's only for hands and wipe a dish with it. Woe be to you if you take the holy rag that's for dishes, wipe the dog's face with it. Again, you have sinned, you transgressed the holiness of that rag. We are back, we are right back to what Paul said about man-made religion. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. This thing is for a special purpose and to reduce it to a common purpose is all wrong. You are unholy, you have profaned the kitchen and you will suffer the consequences. God says holiness means fundamentally existing for God. And therefore it can apply not only to humans, but also to animals and to objects. Thus the temple is holy. The tabernacle is holy. The altar is holy. Moses is holy. And Moses' flock of sheep 
is holy. Because what? They exist for God. Their purpose, they are set apart specifically for this end of serving and glorifying God. So holiness is a purpose category, a statement of what you're for. To be holy means that you exist for God. And therefore, you aren't worried if you lose out on your pleasures, if you lose money, if you miss out on some of the good things this world has to offer. You don't exist for the good things this world has. You exist for God. That's what holiness means. Holiness is a statement about what you're for. And therefore, right, if we're holy people, if tragedy strikes and your child is taken from you, you dies early, what do you say? Oh, this is the end of everything. That child had so much life left. Well, it's still sad, but the child's purpose is intact. He existed for God, and death did not change that. He still exists for God. His holiness has not been violated. So we exist to glorify and enjoy God. We can easily say that. Holiness simply means practically living that way, working that out, being those people who say, my purpose is for God. And therefore, if God wants me to live on earth with a chronic illness for 65 years, always be in pain and never be able to leave the house, never be able to carry on a normal life, that doesn't hamper my purpose. If my purpose is to enjoy all the pleasures of earth, then having a chronic illness has totally destroyed my purpose. I have nothing to live for. But if my purpose is for God, then being poor, being sick, being injured, being you know, stuck in a bad marriage, being stuck in singleness you don't like, whatever it is, your purpose is still intact. You still live for God. So God says, sanctify to me, set apart as holy, the firstborn. So Moses describes that then in terms of two different rites, and the first is the rite of unleavened bread, a ritual that expresses holiness and that engenders holiness. The contact, well, the point of the rite is not simply to perform the rite. And this is always the problem with ritual right away. It typically descends into going through the motions. We're all familiar with that. The motions are there for a reason. And the reason is stated up front. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out. Why the ritual? Why do we eat matzah for seven days in March? Not so we can eat matzah for seven days in March. Not just because the ritual is its own point. The ritual is not its own point. The point of the ritual is... Remember, remember this day. And the holiday that comes around every year is an occasion to remember. Point of the ritual, stated up front, remember. And the context of the ritual, again, is the exodus from Egypt. 
you came out. God brought you out. On this day you are going out. And the other part of the context is entrance to the promised land. The Lord brings you in to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites. Why does Moses name all these tribes? As if to say it's a real land. Real people live there and God is going to take it from them and give it to you. It's a land flowing with milk and honey and it will be yours. That's the context in which this rite has meaning. Without the exodus, without the promised land and the entrance to the promised land, the rite means nothing. But in that context, the rite has a clear function to help you remember. So he describes the rite, when you do it, the week following the 14th day of Abib, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. So, you just change your menu. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't taste leaven. Human beings love this stuff. We love it. We are naturally attracted to any religion that says, here's the list of things to abstain from. I got it. I can do that. I can say, oh, I see leaven on the ingredients. Nope, not for me. And God says, yes, do that. Abstain from leaven for this week in March every year. And have a special feast on the last day. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your homes. Wherever you live, get rid of the leaven. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. Right? Literally, that's how you deal with with the leaven. And then there's more. There's a conversation. Tell your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. The point of the right is memory. And that point is frustrated if you refuse to tell your son why you're doing it. I told you before, this is one of my pet peeves with holidays. Oh, we're having a holiday get together. What holiday is it? It doesn't matter. All our holiday get-togethers are the same. We don't talk about the holiday. That doesn't matter. Holiday means an excuse to see your friends and family. God says, no, a holiday means a chance to tell your friends and family why you're doing it. God brought me out of Egypt. Because of real history, a real event in the life of my people, I don't eat leaven for a week. And this is a ritual that God himself came up with. Bring on the pancakes. Say goodbye to the baguettes. We are eating no leaven this week. And what's the function? It shall be as a sign to you. A sign is something that points beyond itself. A sign doesn't do anything for you except inform you about something exterior to the sign. That is your Coming into town over here, the road has that bend in it, so you can't see Gillette at all. But you see the sign that says, food, exit, I think it's 126. And you're like, really, there's a town here? I'm in the middle of nowhere. If you go to the sign and you try to order a hamburger from the sign, you won't get anything. The sign points to something beyond itself. The sign points to the existence of restaurants right around the bend in the road. And same with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a sign. It points to something beyond itself. 
That something is the redemption from Egypt. I eat unleavened bread for a week, not because that's what my grandparents did and their parents did and their parents did and their parents did. I do it because God brought us out of Egypt. And it's a reminder. It's a memorial between your eyes. A sign on your hand. Every time you move your hand, every time you use your hand, you see it. A memorial between your eyes. Every time you use your eyes to look at something, it's like it's hanging in front of your face. You see it. That's what this is. And then it's a prompt that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. To eat unleavened bread for seven days functions as a prompt to speak the word of God. If you're celebrating the word, the work of God delivering you from Egypt, you need to recite the words of scripture that explain what's going on. You talk about what God says about this. Keep it that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. So if you celebrate any day as a Christian holiday, the Sabbath day, Christmas, Easter, you should be sitting down with the Word of God and reminding your family, here's why we're doing this. Here's what the Word of God says about the historical event that generated this holiday. This is why we're here. This is why we're doing this. If your holidays don't prompt you to speak the word of God, you won't find them very sanctifying. In one sense, well, Moses says, sanctify to me, God says, sanctify to me the firstborn, and then he gives instructions for this first rite. Go without leaven for a week. And remember why you're doing it, and speak the word of God regarding it. And God is implying This is how you grow in holiness. By remembering, by speaking God's word, by participating in this ongoing food rite. The reason, once again, repeated one final time, with the strong hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Because of what God did, therefore, do this. Keep this rite, hold this feast. The second sanctifying rite, verse 11, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land. So here's the context. When you come into the promised land, here's another thing to do. As he swore to you and your fathers that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb, that is every firstling that comes from an animal which you have. The male shall be the Lord's. So God gives you a land. You're coming into a promised land. God will give you land. Right? As we know, land is prohibitively expensive now and then. The landowners is the same thing as the elite. Most ordinary people can't afford enough land to feed their whole family with. And so it was then, so it is now. And so what does God say? I will give you land. Right? That was the whole premise of the United States of America. There's land here for free. Anybody can join the land-owning elite without money. Just put in your work and you can homestead 
and have land. God says, I'm giving you that. All I ask in return is all the firstborn. So what is, what is this? Every animal firstborn. So whatever opens the womb, that is whatever is the inaugural birth of that female animal, that one belongs to God. First time your heifer gives birth, first time your mare gives birth, well, no, mares are unclean animals, but the first time your heifer gives birth, the first time your ewe gives birth, the first time your Jenny goat gives birth, that animal belongs to God, and therefore you offer it in sacrifice to God. Now this could get expensive if you have much of a flock of beef, much of a herd of beef, as you know, a calf is worth a little bit of money. And if you have lots of heifers and you keep bringing in new ones, you're sacrificing to God quite frequently. It's God's way of saying, you belong to me. Your stuff belongs to me. Every time another heifer gives birth for the first time, that animal is mine and goes to me in sacrifice. So you set the firstborn males aside for the Lord and the details here in Exodus 13 are a little bit light. God fills it out more in Numbers 18 if you want to go read that. But essentially, you sacrifice all the clean animals. The first one from that mother, the first male from that mother goes to be sacrificed. And any unclean animal that you have, every firstling of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb and if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. So if you own an unclean animal, such as a donkey, most likely the only kind of unclean animal that the Israelites owned in this era, then you have to kill its firstborn son in such a way that it doesn't look like you're sacrificing it. You can't cut its throat and put it on the altar or do something that looks like a sacrifice. You stand behind it with a club and break its neck in a way that's clearly non-sacrificial. Or if you don't want to kill your donkey, you can buy it back with a lamb. This principle of substitution crops up all over. The lamb's life goes for the donkey's life. And if you have a child, your own son, then you also redeem it. Moses doesn't say exactly how to do that in this passage. Numbers 18 he describes it, you pay five shekels for your son. So rather than engaging in human sacrifice or giving your son to the temple so he can belong to the Lord there, you go and you pay five shekels for your firstborn son in order to buy him back from the Lord. So this is three kinds of sacrifice. The life of clean animals, a substitute or the life of an unclean animal, and money for the life of your son. Teaching Israel the price and danger of holiness. Holiness is not easy or cheap. You know what? Eating matzah for seven days is easy and cheap. It doesn't cost any more than an ordinary menu. But paying five shekels for your son, killing every unclean animal that's born on your place or every firstborn of an unclean animal, sacrificing every firstborn of a clean animal, 
That runs into some money that's gruesome and sad. Wow, my beloved pet calf gives birth and I haul it off to be slaughtered right away. Holiness is costly. To belong to God is something that will cost you everything. And as soon as you forget that about holiness, then you start to resent it. I belong to God. Yeah, I want to be holy. Wait, that might cost me time. That might cost me money. That might cost me health. That might cost me relationships. Never mind. I don't want to belong to God. I'd rather belong to Satan because he offers better benefits. God says up front, yeah, sanctify the firstborn. These people have to learn how much holiness costs. In fact, holiness costs your whole life because it means that your whole life is for God. Dedication of the total life existing for God. Not for fun. Not for money. Not for stuff. Experiences, vacations, relationships. That's not what we're for. We're for God. And then again, when your son asks you in time to come, what is this? Why did we have to pay five shekels for my cousin? What do you say? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animal. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So you have to tell your son about the power of God, the horrors of bondage in Egypt, and how God crushed Pharaoh's resistance by killing his firstborn. You say something like this, you see, son, you're alive today, and Pharaoh's son isn't. That's because you belong to God. We gave you to God, we paid money as a sign that you belong to God, and therefore the onus is on you to live for God, not for yourself, not for pleasure, not for stuff, not for fame, not for learning, but for God. He gave us this land, He gave you He gave us you, and you belong to Him. The right shows what holiness is. It teaches holiness in a very visceral way. Setting apart your firstborn son for God says this one is holy. The firstborn shows what's true of all, as we've said the last few times. It's true of the firstborn, it's true of the rest. These belong to God. The fruit of your body belongs to the Lord. The fruit of your work belongs to the Lord. And if you refuse to give it to Him, you could end up like Pharaoh. God comes and takes it anyway. So, unleavened bread, cozy little family feast, This baby dedication that's mirrored today by baptism, not so cozy. So what's the function? Verse 16, again, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. 
So it's a sign, again, it points to something beyond itself. Paying five shekels for your son points to bondage and sin, sentence of death, the need to be redeemed and delivered from the wrath of God. It's a sign. The baptism of children today points to the holiness of the whole church, just as the dedication of firstborns in Israel pointed to the holiness of all Israel. All of Israel exists for God. We show that by paying five shekels for the firstborn. The whole church exists for God. We show that by baptizing every child who comes into this church. This one is God's. Born in the church, belongs to the church, belongs to God. The dedication of children, the sacrificing of animals, they both send this message. God is holy, and therefore his people are holy too. For they belong completely to him, even their children, even their animals. In other words, any theology that says God doesn't care about my children and my animals and what I do with them is an unbiblical theology. God does care about our children. He does care about our animals. And he says they exist for him. And we need to know that. So it's a reminder, again, frontlets between your eyes, the dangling things that every time I see it, I remember God brought us out of Egypt by strength of hand. You put something by the door so you don't forget it when you leave. God says, put this in front of your nose so you don't forget it. Every time you look at your firstborn son, I belong to God because he belongs to God. God delivered me from Egypt. I belong to him. So that's the final reason. Again, it's stated many, many times. God brought us out of Egypt. So we shouldn't neglect the rites of holiness. We no longer practice the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We no longer practice this money-based baby dedication. Especially the money-based thing is open to abuse. God knows that. God knows how smart clerical leaders are at generating new services and coming up with new fees for those services. That's why he puts the fee in writing, five shekels, that's it. That's the only fee, no matter what happens with inflation, no matter what takes place 5,000 years down the road, the fee is five shekels. We don't follow these Levitical practices anymore. The old way of touch not, taste not, handle not. So what's the good of ritual for us? Well, simply this reminder that God does sanctify with ritual, or at least he can. And the rites that we have today are not the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the dedication of the firstborn. Instead, it's baptism and the Lord's Supper. But these rites are obviously parallel, baptism to the dedication of the firstborn, the Lord's Supper to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we understand that through these rites, by means of these rites, in a certain sense, God makes us holy. When we do them rightly, when we remember and when we speak about what they mean. 
Going through the motions doesn't make anyone holy. It didn't in Israel. It doesn't now. Saying, well, I ate the Lord's Supper, so I'm good. Totally misunderstands what it's about. It's like saying, I kicked all 11 out of my house for a week, so I'm good. Well, no, you have to do the whole right, including remembering, including speaking God's word, but above all, remembering. This is what I do because God saved me. Celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remember your baptism. Otherwise, you start thinking that you exist for yourself. You forget holiness. Well, yeah, I'm here to have a good time. Me and everybody else. That's what the world tells us. That's what the flesh tells us. That's what the devil tells us. That's what people we meet on the street tell us. We're here for fun. That's just obvious. And there's something absolutely pathological in our minds about somebody who would give up fun. Someone who would go into a monastery. Someone who would adopt a special needs child. Don't you understand? You're here for fun. You're violating your purpose, dude. The Word of God says, no, that's not what you're here for. The rituals of God, baptism, the Lord's Supper say, you're not here for fun. You're here for God. The world, the flesh, and the devil will fool us unless we keep being reminded by these rites, unless we keep using them correctly. So engage in them with a whole heart, a mouth that speaks the word of God, and they will help you become holier. They will reinforce your sense and your practice of existing for God. God gave his own son. He dedicated his own son, not for five shekels, but actually at the cost of his life. He's not asking us to give anything he doesn't give. He tells us to give our entire selves for him. He gave his entire self for him and thus for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the good of ritual. Help us to see the ritual truth here, the need for us to be reminded repeatedly that we don't live for fun, that we are not about the most tasty kind of bread, the leavened kind. We're not about the most productive way of farming animals, the way where you don't sacrifice the firstborn of every new female breeding stock. Lord, help us to see that we don't exist to be rich, that we don't exist to have fun, that we exist for you. Help us to believe that, to live that, to be holy as you are holy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.